reading 26, maybe let's start there, especially when we think about, Grant, I think you're exactly right, when we think about situations like they're walking through, it's hard to know exactly how to pray. Um, but we do know that the Holy Spirit and Jesus himself are interceding for us uh, continually and for them, um, for every believer. And then I'm really looking forward to hearing uh, your thoughts on 37, if you could launch right in. Sure. So chapter 8, verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. And all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So I wanted to look back at uh, this verse 36. And as, just as we're thinking about chapter 8 as a whole, we've talked about it begins with no condemnation and, of course, ends with no separation. And in the meantime, this chapter is filled with countless promises about who God is and who we are in Him. And it also addresses the topic of suffering at multiple points in the chapter. And we know that God will graciously sustain the believer through whatever trials and suffering comes, and he's using those to conform us to the image of his Son. Um, and that these trials and persecutions do not separate us from the love of Christ, and then we'll look at today, we're even more than conquerors uh, through him who loved us. Um, but I wanted to just look at verse 36 uh, Paul quotes a psalm, and the text reads like this, As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. And uh, commenting on this verse, John Calvin said, It is no new thing for the Lord to permit his saints to be uh, undeservedly exposed to the cruelty of the ungodly. And we know from verse 17 and 18 that the path to glory goes through suffering. Uh, back in chapter 8, verse 17, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, 
in order that we may also be glorified with him. So we know that there's suffering in this life for the Christian. In verse 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And Paul continues in 38 and 39, almost sort of like a crescendo of the whole chapter. I think John MacArthur said you could almost sing this these two verses um, as a worshipful hymn. I mean, the, the, the praises are, are there. There's so many things to praise God for there in his, in his love. Um, but I wanted to read or talk a little bit about these the, the Oxford martyrs who were um, three saints who were killed and were regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. And um, there is a guy named John Fox who wrote a book compiling a bunch of stories from the early church all the way through, I think, the 18th century, hundreds of stories about saints who were killed, who were martyrs for the sake of Christ. And I found this to be really stirring um, about their testimony. And I'll just read um, a little section here about Latimer and Ridley, the Oxford martyrs. Um, On October 16, 1555, after spending 18 months in a tower cell, Latimer and Ridley met at an Oxford stake. With Latimer in a frock and cap and Ridley in his bishop's gown, the two men talked and prayed together before a smith lashed them to the wood. Ridley was the first to strengthen his friend. Be of good heart, brother, for God will either assuage the fury of the flame Give me one sec here. Or, or else strengthen us to abide it. Uh, as the sticks caught fire beneath him, Latimer had his turn. Raising his voice so Ridley could hear, he cried, Be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. And three years later, Mary I died and passed the kingdom to her half-sister, Elizabeth, uh, a Protestant queen, and Latimer and Ridley's candle burst into a torch. I just think that Latimer and Ridley and countless saints throughout history have been in this situation where they were um, being killed for their faith, but yet even facing death, uh, the love of Christ strengthened them, and they knew that uh, they, even in the face of intense suffering, that they would not be separated from Christ, which enabled them to endure. I thought it would be helpful maybe just to think about <clears throat> with that, but... That came from Fox's Book of Martyrs. I love that. And it's part there, Josh, is he's saying either God will make it bearable, but if it's not even bearable, he will his grace will be sufficient. Or he will lessen the circumstance, maybe, but he, at the very least, his grace will be sufficient to take us through it. Yeah, I think was that, that was exactly what he was getting at. Idea. Isn't that great? And so I think we always, I think I always pray for the first. Right, I I think I would rather the circumstance be taken away. Uh, and oftentimes, just like Paul, he prays that, pleads with the Lord, and what does the Lord say? No, but my grace is sufficient, right? And my power is made perfect in weakness, which in the end, we probably grow more through walking through the trial than not having the trial at all, maybe. Uh, Grant, you've got some insights on 37 too that I find interesting here. But can you take us even to where you were last week a little bit um, in that, and Carter touched on it too, in that suffering shouldn't be a, 
a surprise for us? Yeah, I don't. I don't think it should be a surprise, um, even if it is extremely uncomfortable. I think it should be expected for the Christian, um, as Josh already pointed out. But what we saw was um, that. Paul was making the argument, would tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness, dangerous sword, all that list, and then we'll get into more today of what can separate us from Christ's love. And we saw last time, or I think Schreiner argues very well for this idea of like a twofold thing for Christ's love. Obviously, Christ does not stop loving us. It's not a sign of Christ's condemnation on us when we suffer. Um, it's actually probably a good sign if we're suffering for Christ and not for our own causes that we are probably his children. But also, because of the context of the golden chain that we were the ones that were foreloved, and then once we're in the golden chain, he's going to carry us all the way through. Um, all those that are not his, maybe that, those are the people that could potentially apostatize, um, or they will if they're false Christians um, through suffering. But his true children... I don't think I made that point good enough last time, that if we are in the golden chain, if we are foreloved, we are true children of God, and he will sustain us through whatever suffering that we experience. And we saw that with Latimer and Ridley. They were sustained, and I mean, couldn't imagine being burned alive. Just the pain must have been unbelievable. But they were sustained in suffering. And um, we see that with this, and we also see that it's not the escape of uh, the tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword that is the conquering that comes in 37. Because many Christians will experience um, suffering to the point of death. They will uh, have tribulation, distress, or, or state-sponsored persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or the sword will be used against them. And the point is not that we get through that and then we're more than conquerors, meaning somehow we overcame the sword physically with a bigger sword or somehow we overcame the famine through you know a bumper harvest that like Christ blessed us in that no we likely that means that we will die in those situations so I wanted to get at today what is the idea of of conquering more than conquerors so super conquerors or hyper conquerors and I wanted to kind of start with this idea that it is not apart from Christ that we're conquering we saw that those horrendous situations those are not natural to face on your own, and I don't know of anyone who can sustain through those without, uh, if they're not a true child of God, without recanting their faith through this extreme torture. And we see sort of an example of that with, with Peter. Uh, the Apostle Peter in Matthew says that he would not leave Jesus. And I'm just going to read it because I didn't notice a uh, one little comment in here, and it's Matthew 26, I believe it's 35. Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. I had not realized that all the disciples echoed that comment with Peter, that they would not deny Christ. And then we saw that they did when it came down to it. They all scattered, especially Peter, denying him with oaths, with cursing. Um, but then we see that later in Peter's life that he was crucified and for the faith, and he sustained through that. So I think we see this difference that in our own strength, we're not going to conquer. We're not going to be super conquerors. Um, we're going to fail. And so with this un um, being united to Christ um, and his love sustaining us through that, that's how we're more than conquerors. It's not anything that we're doing on our own. But I wanted to get to 
maybe addressing this idea of super conquering or being hyper conquerors. Because as I was reading, I was wondering, why is it put that way? Why are we more than conquerors when we're experiencing this tribulation, when we die, or, or when we're basically ostracized for the Christian faith, having no money for food or clothing or anything like that? What does it mean that we're super conquerors? And, and of course, we got to it last time that I do think it's focusing on final glorification. It has nothing to do with surviving the suffering, but appearing with Christ in a glorified state. Um, but why not just conquerors? Why is that not just conquering? And I think it's unique because it's different than if the worldly sense of conquering. And a guy named Robert Haldane kind of brought this up to me, this interesting idea about super conquering. He says, in a sense, that we can conquer and it would have been better had we not had the conflict. We win, but at great personal cost with a hollow victory. You can think about it in the terms of like a gruesome battle. There's a lot of tragedy that happens, but the victory finally comes, but at really great cost and almost senseless destruction leading up to the victory. It doesn't really have much meaning other than it accomplished the goal of the victory, but at a great cost. But it's different with uh, Christians because we, in this sense, super conquer because united to Christ, we conquer with him. Divine, infinite power fights for us and everything works to our good. All that bad is working to our good. It is better for us that we have the conflict in some mysterious way. And another pastor put it this way, if we barely manage to win our way to heaven by the skin of our teeth, we could be said to be a conqueror. Uh, but a more than conqueror is someone who takes the worst that life can throw at him and uses that to become victorious. More than a conqueror is one who, by the grace, of, grace and the gift of God and the strength of God within him, actually takes the very things that are designed to destroy him, and they become stepping stones instead of stumbling blocks. That is being more than conquerors. So all, that, all the tribulation, all the suffering, all the things are not senseless. They have intense meaning for us. We are being conformed into the image of God's Son, and all that will be worked for our good and final glory. So I think that's sort of getting at what it is. But Spurgeon, Spurgeon kind of just shifted the focus slightly and came at it from a slightly uh, different angle. He said in this way, basically talking about uh, the gladiator games um, in uh, ancient Greece, but if we see a fighting machine coming from the ring just having demolished a smaller opponent, we would say that there's nothing really special about this. That is how it is normal. That's normal conquering. A strong brute conquering a weaker brute. And then this is quoting Spurgeon. Now, see the Christian champion coming from the fight, having won the victory. Look at him. He has overcome human wisdom, but when I look at him, I perceive no learning nor cunning. He is simple, unlettered person who just knows that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, yet he has won the victory over profound philosophers. Then he is more than a conqueror. He has been tempted and tried in all sorts of ways, and he was not at all a crafty person. He was very weak, yet somehow he has conquered. Now this is being more than a conqueror. When weakness overcomes strength, when brute force is baffled by gentleness and love, this is victory indeed. When the little things overcome the great things, when the base things of this world overthrow the mighty, and the things that are not bring to naught the things that are. Yet this is just the triumph of grace. The Christian is, viewed according to the eye of sense, weak as water. Yet faith knows him to be irresistible. According to the eye of sense, he is a thing to be trampled upon, for he will not resist, and yet in the sight of God he becomes in this very way by his gentleness and patience more than a conqueror. He is more than a conqueror because he loses nothing 
even by the fight itself. When a battle is won at any rate, the winning side loses something. In most wars, the, the gain seldom makes any recompense for the effusion of blood. But the Christian's faith, when tried, grows stronger. His patience, when tempted, becomes more patient. His graces are like the fabled Antius, who was this Greek god who, if he touched the earth, became stronger, who, when thrown to the ground, sprang up, sprang up stronger than before by touching his mother earth. For the Christian, by touching his God and falling down in helplessness into the arms of the Most High, grows stronger by all that he is made to suffer. He is more than a conqueror because he loses nothing, even by the fight, and gains wondrously by the victory. I thought that was extremely moving to see what it means to be more than a conqueror. Yeah, it's great. Josh? I got nothing to add. Yeah, the love what Josh said, there is no condemnation. Uh, in verse 1, they were headed to no, to no separation. Um, for sure, Grant. Thanks for the good insights on thirty-seven. I don't know. It's hard to imagine a topic more encouraging to me than than the love of God for His Son and and for His people. And um, Packer says God's love is a function of 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 the omnipotent and has at its heart the Almighty's purpose to bless, which cannot be thwarted. So you can't thwart His blessings. This is what God has intended to do and what he's going to do, not in the way we would probably uh, think of a normal blessing. We don't talk about our trials as blessings maybe very often. I love what Derek Thomas said um, about the love of God. Where there's a will, there's a way. That's what we say, right? Where there's a will, there's a way. And he said, and when the will and way in question is God's, then the way is certain. God's will is to save us and to bring us home and nothing can stop him. Uh, I think Scott would remind us if he was here that Jim Elliott uh, famously said he is no fool to give what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. And so uh, this verse, the 38, if we get there, is for I am sure, or different translations, for I am convinced, Mr. Whitmire, who is the uh, um, public address announcer for Georgia football games, you probably heard him then, uh, over the loudspeaker a lot. He comes in every time we are teaching Romans 8 because he loves Romans 8. He's memorized Romans 8 and he talks about Romans 8 with great passion. Those, he says, are his favorite three words in the whole chapter. I am convinced. I'm convinced. And I think, to me, what challenges me to know how convinced I really am is every trial. Every trial that comes into my life the ones this morning make me wonder, wait a second here, how convinced am I of this? And uh, if we're convinced, then we're, we're super conquerors. And we know that to be true. Do we believe that? Uh, MacArthur said, we come out conquerors by becoming stronger spiritually through every trial. So in that way, we're a super conqueror. And we're a super conqueror in that our ultimate reward is heaven. Um and it will surpass any earthly loss. So are we comparing, do we compare those sufferings that uh, aren't worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us, like in 8.18? So uh, who can separate you from the love of Christ? I love this, and I would love to hear Grant and Josh, your thoughts on this. It's not our love for him that he's talking about here. It's his love for us. And how thankful can we be for that? I mean, what could separate us from our love for him? Well, the smallest of things, kinds of 
makes my love diminish, I think, for the Lord sometimes. But nothing can separate us from his love for us. Tell us about the importance of maybe making sure we're, we're yeah, putting I'm, that in the right order. I'm thankful it's not my love for Christ or for God because money is... Is uh, it goes up and down? I think yeah. the reason there's so many things in this passage that are good is because it's Christ's love for us that is unchangeable. It is consistent, and it's based in His own character. God's love for us is rooted in His unchanging nature, and uh, we don't have to worry about these threats being signs of well, maybe God doesn't love me because these things are happening in my life. I think Paul deals a strong hand refuting that here. Yeah, it's for sure, Grant. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I can say anything different than yeah, that. Yeah, I, it's, it's so, and I think you can see that, that if it's God's love for us that's not changing, then we're in great shape. And, uh, and, 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 our, and the more we're convinced of this, don't you think, the more our love for him will, will grow and uh, will thrive. Zach, you taught this. A month ago, two months ago, maybe, uh, at Jittery Joe's. Help us to understand kind of what 30... Were you 38 and 39, mostly? 31 to 39. Oh, mama. You did all of those at one time? Ooh! That would have been a couple hours. <laughs> yes, I would, have loved, I would love to hear the whole thing. Give us the highlights from that, because it's so rich. Yeah, I agree with you that revisiting these two verses... Um, this weekend is really challenging because Paul's conviction is so strong. Yeah. Um, and so I'm challenged that I want to have convictions like Paul. Um, but then I find assurance in, you know, at this point we've got shipwrecked Paul, flashed Paul, um, you know, he's been persecuted. And in all of that, he's become sure that nothing can separate him from the love of Christ. And in all of those events, I'm sure that he actually found that all he has is Christ um, and his love. Uh, yeah. No, that, right. And so you're saying that didn't happen just overnight. Yeah. There was a lot of sanctifying. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure he knew it a long time ago, but now he's sure. And um, looking at this word, as best I can tell, they say that this is the perfect tense of sure. So that's, he's been convinced, but he's continuing to be convinced. Oh, yeah. And so as life progresses, his assurance and like not being separated from the love of Christ is just going to continue to grow. So. Yeah. No, that's, that, that's great. And it is rich. I read that about that word. That was, that was interesting and, and new to me. And so um, Stott said about our love, going back that it's not our love, he said, uh, our confidence is not in our love for him, which is frail, fickle, and faltering. But in the love he has for us, which is steadfast, faithful, and, and perseveres. The doctrine of the perseverance, I thought this was neat. The doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, right? That the saints, that God's never going to lose his saints. He said it should be called the doctrine of the perseverance of God with his saints, right? It's God who's not losing us. It's not us that are that holding on to God, right? And our grip would be, oh, I remember when we were in Chicago, I was about six. I thought escalators were amazing because we don't have those in Nebraska. I probably still don't have them in Nebraska. Well, anyway, there's an escalator in the, uh, oh, some, I don't, we were at some place where, some place in Chicago that they don't have stuff like that in Nebraska. And so I see this escalator. I taught mom and dad into going up. And so um, I, 
I like tear away and, and, and get a race up the, the escalator. Sure enough, I didn't realize that the one right beside it comes back down and I'm lost now in Chicago. And so I'm just thinking, how many times did I try to get away from like dad holding my hand? If it was up to me as a little six-year-old terrorist, I'm always trying to get away. Right, and I think that's the way we are generally now. If it's up to our love for God, that's not very comforting. But He's the one that has us in His loving right hand. He's the one that's not going to let us go. And there's great assurance in that. And we can be sure of that. And we can be sure that all of these things that are bringing, um, that He allows in our life, that He brings in our life, probably better. And 17 of them, really, right? If you go back. To some of these questions, look at 33 again. What shall separate us from the love of Christ? And he gives seven there. Tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. So in, in questioning that, it's the unanswerable question because he goes on to say, no, you know, um, as it is written. And then 37, no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And then you, you almost remember his little opponent, right? Whoever this is, sometimes we can imagine it's Satan, almost saying, well, wait a second, though. What about, and so there's these seven, now he gives ten more. There's 17 things that can't separate you from the love of God here in these, in these few verses. For I am sure that neither death nor life, neither angels nor rulers, neither present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Joshua Grant, when you look through that list, what are some things that stand out there? Yeah, well, just looking at 38 on Paul's conviction, I mean, he is completely certain. There's an, there's an unshakable and un, unbreakable conviction here I mean, he's fully persuaded that these things do not have power to separate from the love of God in Christ. And, um, I, you know, he goes through these, uh, you know, potential threats here. Um, you know, there's a lot of them are in pairs. I think eight of the ten in 38 and 39 are in pairs, and they're sort of like these dichotomies. I mean, just looking at the first pair, uh, death and life, those are really the only two possible states of existence for human beings. You're either dead or you're alive, and there's really nothing outside of life and death. It's an all-encompassing dichotomy that he's setting up here and saying that even death nor life cannot separate us uh, from the love of God in Christ. But we know death does separate and, and divides a lot of things in this life. Um, it separates us from family relationships. It separates us from earthly pleasures and business endeavors and hobbies and things that we give our time to. When we die, those things are no more. It, it, death does separate us from a lot of things, but not from uh, Christ's love for us. <clears throat> yeah, I love it. Uh, Grant? Yeah, I don't know if I'm thinking through this right. I do know that um, Paul is... He's encompassing everything with these categories, showing there's there's nothing on heaven and earth, in the earth, under the earth, or any created being, I think, including ourselves, that can separate us from the 
love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. But I wanted to sort of, this week I was kind of challenged by thinking through, you know, we're coming off of the previous verses talking about affliction and persecution, things like that. And as a single young man, I didn't never really think about anything like that. Or if I thought about any sort of suffering to come, it was like, you know, I can just take it. It's just me. You know, it's probably arrogant young man thinking. But it didn't ever really register with me. It was just going about my life. But I think as you get married, um, your scope of who you love increases. Um, and it's a little different thinking about your spouse suffering versus you suffering. And then as you have a child that sphere increases even more, and it's hard to imagine loving anyone like you love a child. And then thinking about stuff happening to your child or, or your spouse, or it's, it's just to, it, it puts a total different spin on maybe things to come. That's the thing that I'm, I'm focusing on here. Things present nor things to come can separate us from the love of Christ, and the uncertainty of things to come grabbed my attention this week with having a daughter and having a wife. Um, I just think about stuff happening to them all all the time, probably not in a good way, but um, I think the temptation is to, to not take these verses to heart and with that capacity for increased love with your wife and your daughter as you grow, I think the capacity to become timid and fearful Mm-hmm. increases with that you just that's all you're doing is you're anxious you're worried about them you're worried about the situations they're in and as a man it's right to be the protector and to think through some of those things um, but to get into this sort of servile fear of just bad things happening to your family uh, I don't think I think these verses can kind of dispel that that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus the things to come can't do it either that mm-hmm. suffering to come he'll sustain us through it. Uh, I know my wife loves the Lord. I pray that my daughter will one day. And um, if she doesn't already, hopefully she does now, but if she understands. But um, things to come can't shake that up. There's nothing that's going to come in the future. That uncertainty, even though it is uncertain, who knows what the future will hold for any of us. Um, what is certain is that Christ will be there with it. He won't leave or forsake us. And I think about. Um, John Patton up in the tree when just the worst of the worst circumstances and then I think of like Adoniram Judson losing a child and losing a spouse yet he was sustained through that and I draw courage that if God wouldn't leave them and he has promised he won't leave his saints that he won't leave me um, I was foreloved he will carry me all the way through uh, to final glorification He's there's no getting out of that golden chain it's not my um capacity to love him that is dictating that he is going to carry it like you were all talking about he's going to carry it all the way through so that's what I was I guess I was more convicted by that this week than um, insights on it but I thought that was that was very good to think yeah about. no it's it is really good and every trial I think brings us uh, conviction of how convinced are we how sure are we uh, Josh talked about that we're starting with death MacArthur tells of uh, Barnhouse I thought this was really good His wife died um, when his kids were small, and as he rode home from the funeral, a large truck passed them, and it briefly cast a dark shadow over their car. I thought that was a great analogy. And um, he asked his kids, because he had been looking for a way, how do I communicate what mom's going through here? And uh, and he asked his kids, 
would you rather get run over by that truck or by the shadow of a truck? And they said, well, we would way rather get run over by the shadow because it wouldn't hurt. And the father said uh, this to, to his children, well, your mother just went through the valley of the shadow of death, and there is no pain there either. So death is not the, the enemy anymore that it was, right? It lost its sting. Um, and we know that from the resurrection chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, Psalm 116, 15. Precious is the sight of the Lord is the, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his godly ones. With Jesus, we prefer rather to be absent from the body because we'll finally be at the Lord, 2 Corinthians 5, 8. Because of the resurrection of our Savior, death has lost its sting. We look over here in verse 834, um, who is to, uh, to condemn Jesus is the one who died. More than that, he was raised. Remember that? And he's at the loving, he's at the right hand of the Father interceding for us. And so um, spiritual dangers are not in death, but in life, the second one he goes to. And um, that is a supposed threat. But even the love of the love of God can't be threatened by anything. Um, in this life, you know, you look over at 35 and see those seven things that happen in life, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness. Um, Derek Thomas says that, um, for the elect and only the elect, they're the ones that make it all the way home. Um, I love this, uh, going back to Stott, he said about these five unanswerable questions, Together, they affirm that absolutely nothing, absolutely nothing can frustrate God's purpose since he has, that he has for us or quenches generosity since he did not spare his own son. Um, or he accuse, he can't accuse us anymore or condemn his elect since he has justified them through Christ. Or um, keep us from his love since he has revealed it from Christ. So there's all of those things. So in 28, and you go back and back to Stodd here, in 28 he had those five convictions about um, God's providence. And then in 29 and 30 in the golden chain, he has those five affirmations, right? That well, those are foreknown, will be predestined, those are predestined, will be called, those are called or justified, those are justified or glorified. He's going to take us all the way home. Right? Nobody slips through the cracks there. And then 31 to 39, we have these five um, unanswerable questions that have great affirmation. Let's make it our goal, I would say, to read 28 through 39 over and over and over. And I just find that it is my best friend during hardships to go back to these things. What do we know? What do we know? Not what do we feel. Right, I've got to preach to myself to say I, I cannot believe my feelings right now. Liar, liar, pants on fire. Right, that is what my feelings continually are. And I can't buy them. Right, because they're, they're, it's not true. It's what's true is in God's word. And that's what we have to hold on to. What, any, any other kind of final thoughts on these? Maybe just a few scattered thoughts. I just can't help but think about this letter that Paul wrote to the Roman church that would, you know, I think even at the time of its writing there was intense persecution, but it would grow astronomically yes. in the days to come. 
And I think that church and those believers would have gone back over and over to these words. And the saints throughout history, John Patton, I think camped on these truths and promises and were sustained by them. And I think we will in the coming days also go to these more and more as potential persecution ramps up in our era. But there's such comforting promises. And I know we're leaving Romans 8, but we'll be coming back to it. But Jerry, you, I mean, this chapter, your favorite chapter in the whole Bible, would you say? I mean, what's helped you grow in the conviction as, as Paul had such conviction that these things are true no matter what we feel? And I mean, how would you say it's even impacted your own life? Well, I think Zach hit me when he said that Paul, it, it, it took some time probably to become more and more convinced. But I think that's what every trial does is drive me back to Romans 8. And every time I get back to Romans 8, I become more sure. I become more convinced. No, this is true. What I'm feeling right now is not true. But this is uh, the truth. So probably for me, when I was 17 and broke my neck and uh, life changed dramatically was the time where this really started to become good and rich and things I would think about. And at that time, it was Romans uh, 8.28 primarily. But now I just feel like it's the combination of these 39 verses that I have to read, that I have to think about, that I have to listen to while I'm brushing my teeth. Because something's going to happen in the day where I'm going to need to come back to this and to say, well, what am I really convinced of here? You know, what's really true here? And... Uh, what looks to be true are light and momentary troubles. They're just achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we need to fix our eyes not on what's seen, but on what's unseen. What's seen's temporary, but what's unseen's eternal. And um, so I, I, they've just they're they're invaluable. I don't know. I, I wouldn't want to go a minute without them. And uh, what have you guys experienced as we've gone through Romans eight? What are the things that stick with you? That's really good. I can't wait to hear what Grant said. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of good stuff in here, Jerry. It's just, the, when I think back through it, it's for me, it's just reading it and learning it and trying to treasure it right now. But you have lived it, and I know there's others in this room that, that have lived it. So maybe I'm asking you the same thing that Josh asked you, but I just am more interested than what I find good is what does life look like when you are actually believing these things rather than yeah. just studying them? How does it change how you interact with the, just a day-to-day -day life? I think Grant's basically just saying I'm old. That's what <laughs> happens when you've lived it a while. And now you think yeah. you're exactly right, Grant. You know, it's just dramatically different, though. That's a, that's a great question because I'm worried and I'm anxious and I'm uh, self-centered when I'm not camped in here. And when I am, there's a whole different sort of being secure in this. So then we don't need to worry about us anymore. God's got us taken care of. So then you can focus on others and you can look to, to minister in a whole different way. And I just think it's um, the self-forgetfulness that really can stem from this. Because if God's for us, then like, we can breathe this big sigh of relief and just say, whew, good. Now I don't have to worry about any of this anymore. So now 
let's go. Let's go after all the things that God has for us in a given day without being so um, consumed just with my own issues, which are multiple for sure. But um, I, I, I wrote this out because I just thought this is just what I'd like to become uh, convinced of. What, we know, what do we know for sure? Every event in the life of every believer including what's going on right this minute, and I think about, especially for Scott and Loyana right now, is divinely and sovereignly planned, best of all for God's glory, but just as much for our good. And that good, of course, doesn't mean comfortable or fun or easy or enjoyable. That's beside the point. That's waiting for us in heaven, and that's going to happen there. But we're not there yet, and we're not guaranteed of that now. As the Holy Spirit and Jesus intercede for us, God answers in the affirmative, and we're guaranteed that all things, in verse 28 and in verse 32, they're a sure thing, and that is everything that will make us more like his son, because he's already proven that um, he had, by giving us his son, whom he loved perfectly before the creation of the world, God's love does not come. I'd love for us to think about this week. God's love's not coming in a thimble or a five-gallon bucket. It's the 55-gallon drum of his white-hot love every day of every week, every minute of every day because it comes through the trials as much as through the good times. And, uh, and I tend to think like, hey, I'm feeling pretty loved today when things are going well. But we are equally loved. Nothing separates us. Nothing makes that love go, go up or down. So ask yourself, this question, do you believe this? It is clearly and decisively taught in these 12 verses. And maybe you could say 14 from 26 to 39. In these 14 verses with an airtight argument and an impeccable logic. If you do believe it, isn't that what you want? If you're like me, you can't listen to yourself. You must preach to yourself. Those on the social media sites that would uh, um, try to encourage you to, like, you do you boo, whatever that means. <laughs> Don't do you boo, right? That is absolutely horrible advice. And they're not taking into consideration the, the joys of dying to self, taking up your cross, and following Jesus, when it doesn't seem like it's worth it, remember that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. It oftentimes, if I have to be honest, it oftentimes doesn't seem like it's maybe going to be worth it. But it is. And I know it is. And we know it is. Um, I'm convinced that it is. So nothing um, can be more convincing than the sacrificing his own son. If Scott were here right now, I know he would give us two missionary analogies and implore us to consider the gospel, right? I think that's what we, we need to do, consider the gospel when we're walking through these. And, um, and I'd love to just ask you to take a minute to do that personally and whatever the biggest trial is right now, ask the Lord to apply these great truths to him. Why don't you... Josh, can you just give us a minute um, to pray and then um, close us? Sure. <clears throat> Let's pray silent and wait for a minute and, and ask the Lord for this grace.
Father, what a wonderful promise it is to know that there is nothing in all creation that can separate us from your love. I pray that we would dwell on these things and these promises would lodge deep into our own hearts and minds and that they would uh, give us great comfort and joy this week in the face of trials and worries and that they would truly be a ballast for our own life and give us great confidence, Lord. Thank you for our great and complete salvation that has been accomplished in Christ. And uh, I'm so thankful for Romans chapter 8. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Lord willing, we'll head to Romans 9 next week. Thank you.